We're ready to go whenever you are. Okay, well, sex tape is the perfect date movie, says some guy in Sacramento. That's good, to, good, good to know. If I yeah. am ever dating some guy in Sacramento, I will take him <laughs> to sex tape. That's right. Welcome, one and all, to another exciting edition of The George Sanders Show. Uh, Sean, I'd like to let you know that this episode, we actually uh, we did some preview screenings of it. Uh, we, we ran it through some test audiences, uh, got some studio notes on it. Um, you know, and I, I thought that they made some good points. And unfortunately, I hate to break it to you at the top of the show, but you didn't test very well. Uh, I'm not surprised. So we're going to have to cut you. Yeah, we're going to have to cut you from the show. Um, so it's going to be me and my dog this week hosting the show. <laughs> only, only, <laughs> because if, every, only if what? the dog wears sunglasses and uh, so tells wisecracks. Yeah, well, it's going to be like a Turner and Hooch kind of thing, uh, except a, the a poochie. The twist. Well, yeah, the the, <laughs> the twist is I'm the dog. I'm I'm the irascible one, and then the dog is the uh, you know straight faced one. So uh, it's a whole new look for the show, and it ties in really well with the theme of this episode, which. Uh, We've been talking about it for a while now, but um, we're actually going to have a little George Sanders book club this week. Uh, you and I both read Thomas Schatz's book, The Genius of the System, uh, Hollywood Filmmaking in the Studio Era. And that kind of was the jumping off point for the films we'll be discussing this week as well. Um, we'll be discussing 1941's Hell's a Poppin' um, and The Barefoot Contessa from 1954. So uh, it's going to be an interesting show. I... I, I I wonder what the returns will be, what the box office is going to be on this show. Um, but we'll see, I guess. Um, I, I, I imagine like every other show we've done, uh, it'll be a, a net loss for the organization. <laughs> That's right. We're going to we're gonna have to write it off. But, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, because if I learned anything from this book, which we'll be delving into in the middle part of the show, is that uh, we always have an opportunity to bounce back. Yeah. So, well, the, the, you we're, know. we're lucky the boys in New York are too distracted to, to pay any attention to us. That's right. Right. Greener skies are ahead. So uh, without further ado, let's hear a clip from uh, 1941's Hell's a Poppin'. Down a point. Let me go. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I can't stand it any longer. You can't stand what? Just. Johnson. Olson. Olson and Johnson. Oscar. Listen, fellas, we've got to get out of here. Yeah, 
We've got to have a story, a love story. Why? Why, I'll tell you why. Because we've got to have one. Because every picture has one. Hey, just a minute. Take it easy, bud. Who is he? My bodyguard. Take it easy. Telephone for Mr. Olson. Hello? Who? The chambermaid. It's for you. Hello? Yeah. That's bad. That's good. That's good. That's bad. Hey. That's good. Hey. That's good. Hey. That's bad. Hey, what are you doing? That one? What are you doing? I'm helping her sort a box of strawberries. Mrs. Jones! Mrs. Jones! Uh, what do you want? I've got to deliver this plant to Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones! Look here, my friend. We're making a motion picture here. That's a matter of opinion. Okay, so that was a clip from Hell's a Poppin', directed by H.C. Potter, and starring uh, two vaudevillian uh, comedians, Ole Olson and Chick Johnson. And the film is based on a stage show that they did called Hell's a Poppin'. Um, but story goes that there were studio notes, and the studio wanted to impose um, you know, musical numbers and a love story and stuff into this kind of, you know antic kind of Marx Brothers-esque, um, you know, crazy extravaganza. Um, and so Olsen and Johnson uh, did that, but they did it in the most, like, snarky and absurd and surreal and laugh-out-loud way they possibly could. I mean, they basically deconstruct every Hollywood genre um, in, in the midst of making this movie. The film is a slim 84 minutes long, but it is just chock full of just great gags, absolutely bananas, uh, choreographed dancing sequences, which we'll get to. Um, and basically they threw everything at the, at the screen and, and saw what stuck. And it's, I've never seen a movie like Elsa Poppin. Um, I, there are some elements that remind me of other films and we'll get into that as we go. But, um, I had heard about this movie for a long time, and it's really hard to find. Luckily, Scarecrow uh, Video in Seattle has two copies of it um, that are of questionable uh, legitimacy <laughs> in terms of where they came from. But uh, I was so happy that I finally got around to see this thing. And uh, you recently you saw it before we watched this episode, but not too long ago. Is that correct, Sean? Yeah, I, I, I rented it in, uh, in February. And I, I was happy to watch it again just a mere six months later. Yeah, I, um, I saw, I, so there's a clip of this movie, there's a clip from this movie um, of this jitterbug Lindy Hop dance sequence that I saw on YouTube at least like seven years ago. And it has stuck with me because it was just so energetic and insane. Um, it's so fast and, it's, and, so, it's and so athletic. Yeah, if you can't track down Hells of Pop in the movie um, after hearing us talk about it, just track down that sequence alone. It's 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 worth your time. It is absolutely incredible. Um, and it's funny because that was my that was all I knew about the movie. Really going into it was having seen that section, um, and that section is not like any other part of that movie really, um, because that is just pure 
athletic prowess on display. Um, and, you know, Olsen and Johnson aren't even in that sequence, you know, so the, the, none of the humor of Hells of Poppin comes through in that sequence. It's just this tour de force of yeah, crazy. It's, it's an all, swing it's an all black sequence right in the middle yes. of this, of the studio film in 1941, which is pretty much it's, unheard of. It's absolutely, yeah, absolutely unheard of. Uh, um, and and when it started, when that scene starts, and I don't think this is in the YouTube clip, there's um, a couple of you know the subsequent dancers or musicians, you know, they, they're they're tasked with bringing these instruments in for this more you know broad performance that's supposed to happen later in the film. Um, yeah, the and it's, the, it, the characters they're they're all like the uh, the workers at this this mansion in in the in the country. Uh, like on Long Island or something. There's like uh, there's like the the cooks and the maids, and this is you know when they're when they're on their own, just kind of setting up for the stage show. Uh, just on the on their own time, they just start you know fooling around with the the musical instruments and. Yeah, and the scene and the scene builds organically of just like the musicians kind of you know first the. Um, you know, pianist will play a little thing and then the bass comes in and then suddenly the whole band kicks in and then suddenly the, the dance sequence goes. And I, I'm trying during this conversation, I'm going to bring up the Marx brothers a lot <laughs> because there's, there's definitely a, a through line between their work and this film. But that sequence reminded me um, of a much inferior sequence in the Marx Brothers MGM film, A Day at the Races, where they also have a, a showcase for, um, you know, black performers, but it, but it's more of a minstrel kind of thing and turns into this, you know, it's kind of patronizing in, um, in a way. Um, and it ends up with the Marx Brothers in blackface. <laughs> um, so it, it's very, it's not, re, it's not very respectful. Um, and what I was so taken with, was with this was that it was, it was so, um, it just embraced this community and this kind of, um, this scene and this, uh, you know, um, artistic endeavor or whatever. And, and it just exists on its own within this movie. It, it doesn't have anything to do with anybody else's thing. It's not being co-opted by anybody else. Um, and it's so refreshing to see that. And yeah, it's not, it's not entirely, you know, super progressive though. Like the, oh yeah. The the way that the scene ends is is very odd. It's uh, like they're they're doing the their crazy swing dance, and then Olson and Johnson come into the room, and as soon as they see the white people, all of the dancers jump up in the air and run away. They scatter, yeah. Which you know, yeah, I can Which, see how that could be read as you know. Yeah, it can be read as as kind of like a minstrelsy kind of thing, but it can also be read as like. Uh, we, the audience, have been getting a, a glimpse of of how these people would behave w when white people aren't watching. Right. Uh, and so they kind of puts us in this, you know, privileged position. But on the other hand, you know, it just assuming that that these people, when we're not watching, uh, you know, behave in, in crazy music and dance is is a little, you know. Yeah, well, well, my takeaway Minstralizing. from the scene, sure, my my takeaway from that scene uh, or them running away was more of just a, and maybe it was just the goodwill that the movie had engendered up until that point with me, where I was just like, oh, you know, they weren't, you know, they're supposed to be doing their job, and they took a break to have this crazy dance party, and 
the bosses, the white people showed up and they're like, oh God, got to get back to work. That was my, you know, like yeah. you can take it as an innocent thing too. Um, and I think, yeah. The good and then the, like the, the dialogue exchange after that is, is uh, Olson and Johnson are talking about, about how great they were Absolutely. And, and how yeah. that they should totally put them in the show. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to bring up is the scene ends perfectly with Olson saying too bad. That's not in our movie or in our show, you know, or whatever. And yeah. I just, to me, that sums up the awesomeness of Hell's a Poppin' is that they dedicate a five-minute dance sequence of just the most insane movements you've ever seen in your life. I mean, they're literally, like, throwing people through the air, and, like, it's it's the most acrobatic thing I've ever seen. Um, and then and then at the end of it, this, the tag is, oops, we should we should have put that in our movie or our show or whatever, and it's, it's just great. Um, but the movie, this movie goes from one crazy set piece to another and they're all disparate and they all you know barely touch each other in terms of style or whatever but they all form this just crazy crazy <laughs> worldview um the the film going to the beginning of the film i was on board with this thing from the the word go because it starts literally in hell uh, well it, it starts with shemp that's true. Good point. It starts with Shemp Howard as a projectionist running um, this show. And he, he comes back time and again throughout the film. And, and he has interplay with the characters on screen. And I can't imagine seeing this on, in a movie theater. I think it would be like just the most fun you would ever have. Um, they play with uh, framing. You know, the, the, um, it gets, well, you get a whole bunch of things. The first one is he rewinds the film. Um, and you know, the, uh, chick, I think asks for him to show that scene again or whatever. And so they back it up and it goes super fast and, um, and the frame gets off at some point and it's just bananas. But anyway, starts out in hell, which <laughs> is, so Olsen and Johnson are just running around and watching all of these weird, it's, it's like a Warner brothers cartoon. Um, you know, they're, they're packing men into cans and, and marking it like canned guy, um, and stacking them for what, I don't even get it. I don't know what the hell is going on. And Olsen and Johnson show up and just cause havoc in hell. And it's just bonkers. I, I, I'm afraid that my whole conversation about this movie is just going to be describing how bonkers it is, but, uh, it's, you know, we talked about the black cat. And that movie's really insane in terms of its like story and like the the way it plays out and stuff. But this movie takes everything to an absurd, you know, conclusion. And that, not just the story, but the um, production and and every little bit of it is just. I can't believe this movie was made. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, we actually, there's a, a very little section about it in, in Genius of the System. Where, it's got like a paragraph. Yeah, and the, in the early 40s, uh, Universal has come under new management, and they're trying to, to look for like cheap ways to make money, because that's uh, Universal's guiding principle, is, is cheap ways to make money. And so they... They get the rights to to Hell's a Poppin', which is a successful Broadway show, like you said, and and they put it out, and and uh, they were expecting that to be like their comedy hit of 1941, but and in the meantime, they had done like an ultra low budget uh, comedy with uh, 
two guys named, named Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, who just became massive overnight superstars and then ended up putting out like uh, like 20 films in the next five years or something and just a huge, became a huge cash cow for for Universal. And Hell's a Poppin kind of dropped through the, the cracks, as you would expect for a movie this this bizarre. Yeah, this movie... Uh... Any you like it's not even in terms of you know oftentimes you talk about a movie from a different era and you just say it's ahead of its time or something. This movie stands apart from everything. Like <laughs> it really just exists well, it, it, in its, it its has, own world. It has a clear antecedent in in Sherlock Jr. Uh, it, it, it even repeats some of the uh, the editing gags in Sherlock Jr. Like there's a a shot uh, early in the film where where uh, Oli and Chick are, are walking uh, through a, a film studio, and as they pass into each set, uh, it, it cuts and their outfits change. So they go from like a winter scene where they're dressed in furs to like a uh, you know, like a busy street, and and uh, the the walk is continuous, just like in uh, in Sherlock Jr. when he's in the film, and and the cuts send him from like the the end of a cliff into a snowbank or something like that. Right. Although it plays differently in this and and this is more of a backstage kind of thing where cuz during the scene in this they're arguing about the production of the film or whatever while they're walking through these scenes. And so it adds this like yeah, Sherlock Jr is very I guess you could use the term like meta, but this is like yeah. this is commenting on like more levels than that. Yeah, and in, its... in, in Sherlock Jr., it's motivated as as a dream that the projectionist is having, whereas this isn't motivated at all. It's just it's just totally crazy. And then uh, the the Marx Brothers in their in their Paramount films, right? Notable. And it yeah, there's a, there's a like I said, there's definitely um, a connection between this and the Marx Brothers, and um, and also and, uh, uh, W. C. Fields who was another uh, person that Universal signed up around the same time as Olsen and Johnson. We talked about uh, Never Give a Sucker an Even Break a few episodes ago, and that has a, a very similar spirit, I think, of, of anything for a, a gag, regardless of if it makes sense at all. Well, and it, uses this, and it uses the same conceit of, um, you know, the jumping off point for the narrative the lo- the large narrative middle section of the film is them reading hearing the script being read to them and right. as it, you know fields does the same in uh, never give a sucker an even break um and going back to the marx brothers with me what was so gratifying about this movie was that this i i've always been less of a fan of the MGM stuff than a lot of people. Like the MGM stuff, everybody says, you know, there was a clear drop off in quality with the Marx Brothers as their MGM contract went on. But I, well, not everyone says that. We'll get well, to I, we'll get to Mr. Thomas Schatz and then yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah. But um, um, but there's 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 a consensus. A, a lot of people think that um, A Night at the Opera is one of the best Marx Brothers movies, um, and to a lesser degree, uh, A Day at the Races, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and ever since I was a kid, I always didn't feel that way. I always I always thought even The Coconuts, their most primitive film, their first film, um, was was better than those because it was, it was crazy. It was still willing to be crazy. And those movies, uh, the later ones, were, you know, 
clearly um, more studio mandated. And I always like buckle at, you know, Alan Jones popping in and, and doing some, some song number. And what's so great about Hell's a Poppin' is it takes all of those things that were forced upon the Marx Brothers, which led to a huge box office success. I mean, Duck Soup, which is their best film, um, was a huge flop at the time. And so, you know, Night at the Opera and Day at the Races were kind of returned to form, or at, at least in terms of box office um, for, for the Marx Brothers. And Hell's a Poppin' takes all of those elements that were forced upon the Marx Brothers, but does but deals with them the way the Marx Brothers should have dealt with them, or, or would have if they could have, by just like saying, you want this in here? We're going to throw it in here, but while it's happening, we are going to do like... We're going to make fun of it at every possible turn. We're going to... Um... It's, it's a movie about how stupid the Marx Brothers MGM films are. And, exactly. But, and Buster Keaton's MGM films are. Exactly. And that's what's so freaking awesome about this movie. Like, this is why this movie touches me so. Because cause I take a personal investment in those failings from those people that I, you know, raised to this, you know, huge pedestal. And I, and I just love more than anything. And then to see them, you know, confined by these, you know, mandated, you know, restrictions um, that completely neutered them. And then to see a movie like this where they have this, they have the uh, the meet cute, uh, you know, romantic um, song between the, the, the young couple, but then they will have a slide come across the screen during this love song that says, Stinky Miller, you need to leave the theater. You know, and then and then the song will keep going, and it's this you know just this kind of ballad thing, and then like a minute later, another slide will come in, and it says, "Stinky, your mother needs you," <laughs> and I'm just like, I mean, I was just rolling when those things were happening. I mean, it was just so great. It def- deflates all of that baloney um, in such a fun way. And they keep fi- and the other thing about this movie is that they keep finding inventive ways of doing that. They don't um, they don't keep doing the same joke over and over again. Like they, they do that one for one and then they do you know, it's just like I said, they throw everything at you and it's just absolutely bananas. Well, even even the staging of the the uh, the lovers duet is is done in an interesting and, and creative way. Like it, it would work just as as a scene on its own, just without the Stinky Miller slides, because <laughs> the uh, because the the characters are are painting on the camera lens as yeah, it's, as it's watching them. Yeah, no, that when that first scene first started, I was like, "That's really awesome!" And 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 then um, they put the 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 further meta joke on top of that. Like, it's not just one layer of 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 humor. It's there, there are so many, you know, levels to the film's uh, kind of critique of cinema. Uh, I love uh, Elijah Kick Jr.'s uh, screenwriter. Screenwriter, yeah. The, the screenwriter that nobody can hear because he he talks so quietly. Yeah, no, he's great. He, I, when I saw his name in the opening credits, I was like, "What? He's in here!" And unfortunately, he's only in the beginning and the end as the that kind of bookmarked, like we said, like the "never give a sucker an even break" thing. But he's got some great moments, especially at the very end. Um, you know, he uh, they ask, I forget what the the what brings it up, but he says, "I saw the stage show and I really liked it," or whatever. And like, you know, kind of. Well, it, it turns out he's he's been hired by by the studio to make a a conventional 
MGM version of Hell's a Poppin', but it turns out that his screenplay is, you know, this crazy Olsen and Johnson thing instead of what the studio boss wanted. So right. as we're watching the film go on, it's, it's, it's him that's created all of the craziness despite the fact that he's like set up to be this, this, you know, hack writer. <laughs> and what I like about this movie is that, like you said, with Sherlock Jr., um, the flights of fancy are taken as like a dream sequence um, and never give a sucker an even break. Um, all of the crazy stuff, like, you know, fields jumping out of the airplane and stuff is all confined to the middle section where it's, you know, so it's the fictional world. But what's great about Hells of Popping is that it's a fictional world within a fictional world within a fictional world because Eliza Cook Jr. at the end of the movie, it that's supposed to be some semblance of reality, but he ends up uh, <laughs> he ends up uh, drinking a glass of water and having water shoot out from like you know twenty different holes punctured through his body. So even within the um, the ostensible reality. The ostensible reality of this movie, um, the insanity and surreal, you know, world continues, which I think is is part of this movie's success is that even when it's doing the scenes where it's supposedly playing it safe, it's still not it's still like saying, Fuck that, I'm just gonna you know, we're just gonna do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, we talked about how it, it relates to the films of the past, but it also looks forward to a lot like it's it doesn't really have a a direct descendant at least until until the 1970s and like the the uh the airplane kind of films with the with the speed and and craziness of its of its uh film satires but it 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 does have a, a synchronized swimming dance routine which looks looks ahead to the esther williams films and a kind of uh the the adaptation of like the Busby Berkeley style to, you know, crazy, you know, uh, water dancing, right? Which I guess had showed up in one of the Berkeley films, but but really it becomes more of a thing with with the Esther Williams movies in the late forties, which are just weird on their own, and it's kind of the the increasing absurdity of of the musical. Uh, Berkeley was already heading in that direction uh, through the 1930s, but after Hell's a Pop and he comes out with uh, with the gang's all here, which is as close to a a studio version, like a, a legitimate studio version of Hell's a Pop and as you're you're likely to get. It, it's a movie where the central romance is just completely absurd and on the but but played straight. And on the margins is just complete weirdness and 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 bizarre Carmen Miranda and the you know the disembodied head of Eugene Paulette singing and it's it's a it's a wonderful movie. <laughs> yeah, I need to check that one out. And then uh, and then most obviously is Mystery Science Theater three thousand because there's a sequence in the beginning of Hells of Poppin where, where Olsen Johnson and their producer are watching the movie that Elijah Cook Jr. is describing and they're seeing it on the screen and we see their three heads as a silhouette as they make fun of the stuff that they are seeing on the screen. And that's exactly the, the MST3K visual aesthetic. Right. And, that, and once again, going back to what I was saying is, is that all of those elements are in here um, but the, they're, 
they're tantalizing nuggets that like are just kind of it you know it's like this movie's so bursting with imagination that it doesn't like overstay its welcome using any of those things because that's a great little sequence that you could have expanded for a whole movie or something like that and they just use it for like two minutes or whatever and it's great you're right because you know they they you know um they do their own uh, voice work over the actors in that scene and, and, you know, they, they make it all pompousy and stuff. And, um, and yeah, it's, there are all those little elements that um, are hugely influential. Um, but yeah. you never, you'll never see a movie where they're all contained within 84 minutes, you know? Um, and speaking of things that cannot be contained, Martha, oh, you're about to bring up Martha Ray, Martha Ray. <laughs> Is an absolute force of nature. Like uh, Martha Ray is absolutely insane. Yeah, she's um, she is wonderful. She, yeah, she's. Uh, my, I watched this with with my wife, and and she was, as you can imagine, uh, totally flabbergasted by what she was seeing. And uh, the only the only thing she asked me about was was Martha Ray. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told her I, I'd only seen her in, in one other thing that I know of and it's uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin's Monsieur Verdu and she comes the closest of anyone I'd ever seen in a Chaplin film to stealing a scene from Chaplin. And well yeah and we discussed that when we talked about that um, film on this show and I actually think well see now, now, I'm, now I'm getting hesitant here. Well okay Hell's a Poppin I think is a better showcase for her. I think um, she's fantastic in Verdu. Um, and, and well, see, okay, Jesus, now I don't know, but, um, her work here is just, I mean, she's really the star of this thing. Cause you know, what's so funny is that Olsen and Johnson are the, the comic duo that are kind of, you know, running with this movie, but she really, I feel like she's got, if not more, she's got just enough screen time as they do. Um, and she completely commands the screen. I mean, she she's not she is fearless. She's absolutely fearless. She is willing to look as ridiculous as, as you could possibly imagine. Um, you know, this the 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 shot of her holding the giant block of ice um, in in the middle of this like you know there's like a throng of like you know bathing beauties and you know dapper men and she's standing there um, looking totally confused and geeky and gawky and and just holding this giant block of ice um which is the only reason she's holding that block of ice is for a really goofy gag that comes up like a scene later um that they just throw in and and what i love about it tying in with what you said with airplane is airplane was not afraid to like go the distance for a stupid gag um at like the mayo clinic like they actually you know they had all these jars of mayo behind that guy when he was in the mayo <laughs> clinic. Um, and and that's the same with this movie, is where is is they're like, okay, we're gonna have this scene where the two lovers meet and it's gonna be so hot and heavy that it's gonna melt a block of ice. Oh wait, how are we gonna have a block of ice? I don't know. We'll just have someone carry it around for like five minutes on the screen. <laughs> like, what the what the hell? But anyway, back to Martha Ray. She is fantastic. Um, you know, she in the final dance number, um, she is just so much fun to watch as she's um, trying to put on a good show, um, but Olsen and Johnson are thwarting it every step of the way, um, and she's just game for anything. She's a real treat. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, the rest of the cast too. I mean, um, you know, you you pointed out um, Elijah Cook Jr., who's great, and uh, I, Shemp Howard um, is is such a great. He he portrays a projectionist so well. <laughs> yeah, speaking uh, speaking as a projectionist, I I can safely say he's the the closest that I've seen on screen to what an actual projectionist is like. Yeah. Kind of cantankerous, uh, you know. Always kind of overwhelmed. <laughs> barely, barely holding it together. Barely holding it together. Combination of desperation and rage. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I, I feel like I feel like he really nailed it there. Um, okay, so here's here's an interesting little uh, uh, little bit of uh, Hell's of Hop and trivia for you. Uh, the the female lead is. Uh, well, the the ingenue in the in the story is, is played by Jane Frazee, and she was married to Glenn Tryon, who was one of the producers of the movie. Uh, Glenn Tryon, you'll know as the star of uh, the the very great uh, early sound film Lonesome, directed by Paul mm-hmm. Feos, and he was also the star of a short film called Forty Five Minutes from Hollywood which uh, was the second film in which uh, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy appeared in together. Really? Yeah. All connected. Yeah. It's all connected. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Laurel and Hardy, um, we actually haven't spent a lot of time um, in this discussion actually talking about Olsen and Johnson, who are the ostensible stars of this film um, and the ones that, you know, got it in motion and... What do you think of 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 their screen presence here? Because you know, like I said, they kind of cede the spotlight to their co-stars, which I think is really awesome. Um, but what do you think about them as like a comedic duo? Do you do, do you do you see how they failed where Abbott and Costello became you know superstars? Uh, it's hard to say on the evidence of this. Like I I can see no no way in this in way. I can see no way in which this movie would have been a hit. Right. Uh, I, I, and think I, I, I don't. I don't think that that is due to any any fault of theirs as as performers. Mm-hmm. They they seem they seem fine. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen any Abbott and Costello. Um, I watched like thirty minutes of one once and got so bored I, I turned it off. Mm. Uh, but they don't have nearly the presence of, of the, uh, the other, uh, people that we've talked about. Right. And Lo- I, Laurel and Hardy, the Marx brothers, WC Fields. They're just, they're just not as interesting as those guys. Yeah. Uh, as, as performers. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, as creative types and, you know, I don't know, you know, who, I don't know how you could pinpoint who is responsible for exactly what in a movie like Hell's Poppin'. Um, but the fact that they are totally game to do anything um, is, you know, something in their favor. Um, but I, yeah, they, there's not like a, mag, at least for me watching this, there's not like a magnetic quality, you know, you're not drawn to the two of them. So much. Um, obviously, part of that is probably that there wasn't much time to, you know, establish personalities or whatever. Um, and 
from this movie, you know, I definitely don't get any sense of the difference between the two. Like, you know, you know the 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 duo of Laurel and Hardy, and you know how those two play off of each other. But Olsen and Johnson, to me, seem to be on the same page. Like they, they're like teammates instead of adversaries or whatever. They're 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 know, both teaming they're up. both short and fat. They're both yeah. They don't look different, um, and they're both in the end. They, they both like just kind of team up to ruin everything. Um, Right. What I they do don't. Like they don't them. have like the the antagonist kind of personality right. that you saw that you with, with Laurel and Hardy, like. Uh, or what you would get with Groucho, you know, in, in every right. Marsh Bears movie, there's a there's a Groucho Chico scene where, um, you know, Groucho is just you know, at, at wit's end because of what his brothers, you know. <laughs> yeah, they seem like two versions of the same guy. Right, but what I will say, and Olson in particular, Oli Olson um, in particular. Um, they, and this can this can backfire easily, and I I can think of movies where this does backfire, um, where characters are um, kind of winking at the audience, or 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 you know doing like a Bugs Bunny ain't I a stinker kind of thing, like when they when they do something you know, and and this like I said it climaxes in this kind of, this extravagant musical number that. Olsen and Johnson go out of their way to completely destroy. Um, and Olsen in particular, but both of them will take, you know, a moment out to like look at the camera and just like laugh maniacally at what they're doing, <laughs> um, which I find totally endearing in this. Right. Um, and they, and they do it. That, it's, it's like they do it like intentionally over the top. And they're like, ah, this hell's a popping. Right. What? The? <laughs> you know? like, there's one point where Olsen says, I think it, he says, yeah, he says that this is hell's a poppin'. Like, you, you morons are watching. This is the movie you guys paid to see. Can you fucking believe we got away with this? And I just love it. I ate it up like porridge. I mean, I just loved it. Um, so yeah, um, hell's a poppin'. You know what I want to do? Here's what I want to do, Sean. Okay. Uh, the Grand Illusion, great little cinema in Seattle, doing doing a lot of good for the community. Um, They've got reasonable uh, rental rates. You know, you can rent out, if you're a member, you can rent out the cinema for, you know, showing on like a Thursday night or something and run whatever you want. And I've been thinking, I've been trying to think of a great movie to do that with and have like, you know, all my friends come and, you know, I'd invite you too, even though you're not my friend. Um, And yeah, and just do, you know, just have like a fun night at the movies. And I was trying to think of a great movie to do that with. And I, you know, I, Strange Brew, you know, some you know, I, there are some perennial classics that came to mind, but I really kind of am tempted to plop down eighty bucks of my own hard-earned cash, send out little invitations, and get everybody I know to come see a screening of Hell's a Poppin' at the Grand Illusion. Would you be down for that? Would you go to that? I, I actually, when uh, when I saw this in February, I thought it would make a perfect uh, double feature with Sherlock Jr. Yeah, and you'd have to have uh, in between the two features, uh, Chuck Jones's Duck a Muck. Well, and I think I think that's a pretty much perfect night at the movies. I think you get a yeah. I think you get a like a two hour chunk. I I might look into this, and you know what? If I do this, it's probably going to be like a year from now. But um, anybody that listens to the George Sanders show, you're you're welcome to come and, and see Hell's a Poppin' on the big screen because. Uh, it's it's a cinematic achievement that I, I I just can't praise highly enough, and I want everybody to see this movie. 
<laughs> I do. I, so anyway, without yeah. further ado, let's let's praise the system that allowed for this thing to happen <clears throat> and say a little hooray for Hollywood. Hooray for Hollywood. That's gooey bally hooly Hollywood. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good looking pan. And any shop girl can be a top girl. If she pleases the tired businessman Hooray for Hollywood You may be homely in your neighborhood Be an actor, see Mr. Factor You make your kisser look good Go out and try your luck You may be Donald Duck Hooray for Hollywood Another Papa Dion, your name in neon. If you get lucky, you could. Yes, buddy, you'll arrive if you can top this five. Hooray for Hollywood! Hooray for Hollywood! So, Sean, uh, while we were taking a little break there, um, I did a little research um, to see what Olson and Johnson did after Hell's a Poppin', and I was looking at their next feature, Crazy House, from 1943, uh, directed, actually, by Eddie Klein, who did uh, some Buster Keaton stuff and did uh, the aforementioned Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. Anyway, uh, I was looking at quotes from that movie, and (laughs) I'm kind of intrigued by this movie, because there's a quote where Olsen says, Chick, why did you do that? Why did you shoot those lovers? And Chick Johnson says, this is going to be one movie without a happy ending. (laughs) Now that has me in the seats right there. Chick Johnson shooting the lovers? Come on. So, uh, Well, Scarecrow Scarecrow probably has it. They have a whole Olsen and Johnson section. So... It's, I already checked. They've got it. So when I return this one, I'm going to pick that one up. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm on this, uh, Ole and Johnson train. Cool. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about uh, this this here tome that's sitting next to me. This uh, this fat five hundred page book um, by author Thomas Schatz. Now, you suggested we read this um, because uh, I think the impetus was that you actually had two copies of it, and so uh, you were trying to get through it and unload one of those copies or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, my my theory was that. Uh that we could do like a little like trivia thing and give one of the copies of it away. But now mm-hmm. I don't know what it, that I want to do that because I don't know that I want other people reading this book. 
<laughs> okay, let's start with that. I, 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 let's, that that's going to be my setup here. Um, uh, so this book uh, is... What, what year did, did this come out? Let me get this uh, right. 1988. 1988, yeah. yeah so this so came out in 1988. 25 years um, old now. Yeah, 25 years old. Uh, Thomas Schatz. Um, and in the uh, introduction, he kind of lays out why he wrote this book um, and, and kind of the overarching like theme of, of the, uh, the book here. And it's kind of, he, he frames it as a corrective um, to the uh, author theory where he's saying that, um, you know, directors aren't as important as everybody's making them out to be nowadays. And we really need to focus on, at least in terms of the studio era, the, um, the producers uh, that were, were, you know, running the show from, from on high. And uh, you, <laughs> very early on, I think before I started the book, you, you started um, emailing me your grievances with this book. So let's, let's start with that. Um, you, you take umbrage with um, that initial theory in, in and of itself. Is that correct, Sean? Uh, well, I take, I take umbrage with... He, he very clearly has an axe to grind with autourism and with Andrew Saris. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, Andrew Saris was an American film critic. He wrote a book called The American Cinema in 1968, in which uh, he kind of categorized directors. And it was a, a kind of version of a history of Hollywood by director you had like your pantheon directors and then the next group and the next group and the next group and they, it wasn't like a strict hierarchy it was just kind of a loose grouping like some were uh, lightly likable some are uh, expressive esoterica and it was basically just using directors as a way to organize history and and to talk about you know the films and and the filmmakers and the auteur theory was this idea that he imported from from Francois Truffaut and the critics of the Cahiers de Cinema, uh, that has gotten uh, it is more misunderstood and disliked because of a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is than anything I can think of. Like it's it's mind boggling to me how often it is mischaracterized and then vehemently attacked. And I don't understand why, because it's not a very difficult concept. And you know, smart people. You know, Thomas Schatz is a professor at a real university, and <laughs> yet this ain't this ain't the University of Phoenix, people. Yeah, he <laughs> he he says in, in the introduction that that Saris developed a simplistic theory of his own, celebrating the director as the sole purveyor of film art in an industry overrun with hacks and profit mongers, which Saris did nothing of the kind. Like there is no autorist anywhere in the world, Andrew Saris or anyone else, who thinks that the director is the sole purveyor of art. Saris uh, multiple times talked about how you could have any number of auteurs, you, a producer, a composer, a writer. All of these people are potential auteurs. He just chose to focus on directors because most often a director is in charge. And most often when you find a spark of individual expression in a factory-made film, it's going to be the director that put it there. But that doesn't mean it is in all cases. 
So his whole, you know, premise of his anti-autorism, you know, diatribe that is this book is based on a straw man version of, of the theory. And it's, I just, I don't understand what is the, the willingness of people to take, you know, this simple idea that, you know, individual expression in movies is valuable and directors often express their individual personalities in their work as as you know something to be attacked like you're you're not uh you're not a film studies guy you didn't go to to film school you don't have you know a film theory you don't do you that? don't have a film theory <laughs> background uh, what what did you make of this because i i you know very clearly have a side of this argument that that i am on so did it did it strike you as as you know frustrating as it did me well um, I, I, when I started the book, I started corresponding with you too. Um, and I, I think the most egregious section of this book is in that introduction where he, where it's, it's much more of a, um, personal bent in the writing. Um, you know, he, um, and I agree with you completely. And, and I thought about that throughout, throughout reading the book. I was like, now, why is he just describing this to directors? Like, because, you know, um, the people he talks about in this book, Irving Thalberg, um, you know, David Selznick, those people <laughs> um, can totally be considered auteurs. And, and going back to the March Brothers stuff um, or, you know, even something that they talk about in here. And he keeps going back to Hitchcock. And I'd like to talk about that in a second. But um, oh, we'll, you know, we'll definitely talk about Hitchcock. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> um, but something like Rebecca. Um, people that subscribe to the auteur theory and people that are, you know, people have said for years that that movie is more, is, is less of a Hitchcock movie, um, than it is a Selznick movie. And, um, and, and people, and people have been saying that forever. And so to get, you're right, to get that kind of fundamental thing wrong. And then looking at people, um, like, you know, nowadays, like someone like Charlie Kaufman or something who is, you know, he's directed one film, but, um, I think he's the predominant, you know, force in the movies that he didn't direct, you know, as, as a writer, you know, I think I consider being John Malkovich or adaptation or, um, eternal sunshine. Those are more Charlie Kaufman movies than they are Spike Jones movies or Michel Gondry movies or whatever. And so, yeah, I agree with you completely where you, you don't have to, you don't have to, uh, be a director to, to, um, get your personal stamp on a film. Um, I think to, to, to be nice, um, to, to give Thomas Schatz, you know, a fair shake here. Um, I do think that this book succeeds um, in a lot of ways. I think it's it is rigorously um, researched. I, you know, he he um, he gets some really solid information in terms of you know budgets and in terms of um, productions um, and stuff like that. I think that, I think he does a really solid job with that stuff. And I find that stuff interesting. I mean, it could sound like number crunching to people or whatever, but I think he does a good job of putting those things into context, um, especially playing the studios off one another. Um, each, each, um, uh, each chapter of the book will follow a certain studio for a time, you know, uh, MGM, uh, universal, does, uh, MGM, universal, uh, Warner brothers and, uh, Selznick on his own. Right, yeah. Once he um, kind of went off on his own, um, and he touches on the others, you know, briefly, you know, uh, Columbia, RKO, stuff like that. Um, no, notably, he 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 tends to ignore the ones that had 
that were the most kind of director as producer focused. Right. Where you, you, know, you had like Ernst Lubitsch at Paramount or, uh, you know, Howard Hawks and, uh, and, and John Ford at, at Fox and, and RKO and uh, Frank Capra at Columbia. And, well, and that's why, yeah. this, that's why this book, and you said straw man argument, um, that's where this book kind of really falters um, is that he cannot help but talk about people like Howard Hawks who completely obliterate his idea, his, his, you know, central premise here. Right. Because um, that's, that's the, you know, the funny thing about, uh, about, about the book is that he, he, he calls, uh, certain directors like, like Hawks, uh, director producers, director producers because, to, to make because, it fit into, yeah. right. Because they're independents and they had control over their own productions. They had, you know, if they didn't have final cut, they at least had, you know, a, a huge amount of power over the film from beginning to end. They didn't just direct it and then hand it off for editing and have no involvement in the creation of the screenplay. Like somebody like a, a Robert Z. Leonard or somebody like that. So you know, directors like like Hawks and Capra and Ford, those were were, you know, exceptional directors. But they also just so happened to be the the directors that the auteurists identified as being, you know, the pantheon directors that before the auteurists came along were derided as just being studio hacks and exactly. not you know real uh, you know legitimate artists in their own right. The the two directors that this book spends the most time on are Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock. And those are the two directors whose names are combined <laughs> um, when you talk about the inception of the auteur theory. Um, yeah, they were, they were derided for being Hitchcocko-Hawksians, as right. if who would possibly take Hitchcock and Hawks seriously. And then Thomas Schatz does just that. And, and um, it's so funny because he talks about Hitchcock and particularly Hitchcock when he was working with Ben Hecht in the 40s. Um, and he will say, like, you know, the, the, I think the, the, the most, uh, the most uh, obvious line to me or whatever is when he's talking about um, Spellbound and Notorious being made. And he says um, something along the lines of uh, these were consummate Selznick productions. And then literally in the next like paragraph, he says Selznick was too busy working on Duel in the Sun. Um, and so Hecht and Hitchcock just went off and did their own thing. Um, and it's like, well, and then he spends the rest of the chapter talking about how even when Selznick was giving them notes, Hitchcock and Hecht ignored them completely. Yep. I mean, they they just went off and did their own freaking thing, and and, and like, also the the one of the of that pair, like he he cites them both as like Hitchcock's peak, uh, right. and the one of the pair that he spends the most time on, and the the one that he uh, uh, that Selznick had the most involvement in is Spellbound, which is one of Hitchcock's worst films. Whereas yeah, Notorious, it, it, where where Selznick is barely involved at all, is one of Hitchcock's best. I, I just I just watched it on Monday yeah. uh, for like the fifteenth time, and uh, that movie is so phenomenal. And it's and it and it's so like it's so not Selznick. It's so not Selznick. It is so completely. It's like anti Selznick. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and so and so the book, especially in the the latter half, David Selznick is known for you know these these massive, lush, romantic melodramas like Gone with the Wind with or the wind. or Duel in the Sun, and right. and Notorious is you know it's technically a melodrama, but it's so understated, and so much of of the emotion of the film is under the surface. It's it's exactly yeah. the opposite of a Selznick kind of picture, and it's shot in in a black and white. You know, it's only a very few locations. It's it's almost all studio shot, except for uh, exterior. There's one exterior scene, besides like rear projection stuff, um, and yeah, it's 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 so hermetically controlled that entire movie like Hitchcock you could feel Hitchcock's presence behind every single decision in that movie Um, and and so so that's where this book kind of falls apart at least in terms of his uh, his alternate theory or his you know his argument um, is that the second half or the last third of this book when the studios are starting to kind of crumble or they're starting to reevaluate themselves um then he's like well what am i going to talk about now i'm going to talk about you know uh to have and have not in the big sleep (laughs) it's like okay well that's great those movies are totally awesome um but what do they have to do with anything um uh to imply that that to have and have not and the big sleep uh which by the way are uh playing this week at the grand illusion august 1st through 6th uh, don't miss them. Uh, as I said on the last episode, just another reminder there. Uh, to imply that that Jack Warner is responsible for them and not Howard Hawks, and and is is just completely absurd. And I don't think Schatz does that in in the book. I think his his point in in that section is to talk about how uh, the success of To Have and Have Not led the studio to you know get Hawks to go back and reshoot parts of things to change, uh, to increase the amount of Lauren Bacall in the film. But I think the book actually says that Hawks, uh, I, I could be wrong here, but I, it, I think it even says that like Hawks was the one that pushed for that. Well, um, yeah, of course he did because it would be obvious. <laughs> right. I know, and, exactly. and, so, and so he's got, he's, he's making like a dual argument here. He's, he's making the argument that, that producers deserve more credit than they're getting, that producers can be auteurs as well, which, yeah. And he's also <laughs> arguing that the system itself, uh, just the, the studios as, as organizations uh, were responsible for the work that the auteur directors did whether or not they were producing it themselves or not, the fact that they had all access to the studio resources and all of these actors and craftsmen under contract and there in the space was somehow the necessary condition for their artistry. Right. And, and so that's, that's part of that, like the, having the studio establishment in place to where that they could see the audience response to the one film and then go back and very quickly rewrite and reshoot scenes to another film. And that, that argument uh, doesn't make any sense either (laughs) because, because, because a, you know, just providing the, the resources and the space for artistic creation is not the same, same thing as actual creation. Uh, And B if anything, the book shows that there is no system at all in right. the studio era. 
every studio has a different setup. Every studio has, you know, a different, you know, uh, at MGM in the Thalberg years, uh, you have one guy who's, uh, you're closely involved with everything that the studio was putting out, even though his name doesn't appear anywhere on the credits. It he is like the guiding voice behind all of the at, at least the the prestige MGM productions right. for for ten years. Uh, whereas you know other studios are more decentralized. MGM in the '40s has like this unit production system where you have Alan Freed uh, running. Uh, a musical unit and uh, uh, Joe Pasternak running another musical unit and you can compare the Pasternak films to the Freed films and see that the Freed films are much better and therefore conclude that that Freed is, you know, the better filmmaker. Right. It, it, yeah, it, you, can't just, you can't just lump in uh, MGM. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not just the MGM musicals are better. There's, yeah, you break it down by... The personalities involved, and, the, and that's the other thing is that you know the way you pick apart the way that you um, start to discover someone's um, worldview um, through watching movies um, is that you take all of the elements that you kind of get from being a studio production that you would see across the board of whoever's doing it, and then you see the stuff that you wouldn't see somewhere else. Yeah. And those are the things the the Howard Hoxian moments, um, the the you know those the John Ford vistas and 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 those and these things and and those are the things that it, it's the differences between the studio pictures that make you realize how much personality does come into play in these things. Yeah, and that's and that's the the method of autourism is 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 a basically like inductive method. It's just to watch as many films as possible and then the things that make them different if you see the same thing making a difference in the same person's films right. then that is their individual signature and autourism presupposes that individual expression is a is a good in and of itself right which you know is like the fundamental premise of autourism and if you don't accept that then, then the auteur theory won't make any sense to you. And I don't think Thomas Schatz accepts that because his standard for success in the book, at least, you know, yeah. in, in the beginning, I thought he was like showing some good judgment in the way he was talking about films. But as it goes on, it increasingly becomes money and gross receipts and whether or not a film made money as the, the, the artistic standard for, for a successful film or not, which is exactly how like the, the many men in New York would see it and not how anyone who watches movies would. Right. Well, and, also, um, also Oscars, yeah. um, which we all, we all know, uh, are infallible. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, at, yeah, at, at one point he like derides all of universals films in the, in the 1950s, uh, because because none, because none of them won an Oscar nomination, and then he throw, offhandedly you know throws in a paragraph about uh, uh, Douglas Sirk and, and Ross Hunter making all of these romantic melodramas, right? Which would be really interesting. You know that is a great you know producer director tandem, and to see how Sirk and Hunter uh, work together and worked within the confines of of Universal's you know very cheap operation to make all of these great movies that would have been fascinating but we didn't get that we didn't get you know the interaction between john ford and daryl zanuck at fox 
where you have right. like this exceedingly independent director who was well established by the time he starts working at Fox, working with a very you know you know equally strong willed producer, and you know there he at one point asserts that that basically the only Ford films that are worthwhile are the ones that he made with Zanuck, which yeah. he made some good ones with him, but not his best films. Yeah, so like you said, there there are uh, it's. It, it's a selective history, you know, um, there, there are, um, studios and names that, that get really short, uh, you know, mention in this thing. Yeah. Which, which is fine. Like you, you have to do a selective history and that's, you know, in the American cinema and that's what Andrew Sarah says is like, it's impossible to talk about film history. It's, it's too big. So I'm going to do this one thing as a way of talking about some of it. Right. And it's, it's an organizing principle and you know, that that's perfectly fine. And it's perfectly fine. If, if, if Schatz wants to just focus on a few studios and a few producers, that's, that's a totally reasonable thing to do, but you then can't then, you know, criticize Andrew Saris for doing the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. So unless you fundamentally, unless you fundamentally disagree with his, uh, you know, thesis statement as it were, but, um, which is what he apparently does here, but but he doesn't um, because he doesn't understand it. Well, <laughs> and I, I I don't I don't I don't get it. I I really okay. Well, let me ask you this. Okay. Um, what what studio? I let's 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 stop critiquing the guy here for a second. And um, as as a term, as, you know, he does get into a lot of nuts and bolts about how the different studios were run. Um, which I think is, is, you know, a worthwhile thing to do. Um, which studio to you over the course of this book, which this book covers, you know, up until the or 1960, um, which studio would you want to work for? Universal. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. That's what I was thinking the whole time when I was reading this thing. Anytime a universal chapter would come up, I'd be like, okay. Here we go, because they're scrappy. They're you know. Um, well, they're they're the least controlled. Exactly. They don't. They there there wasn't a, a Thalberg or or a Selznick or or a Jack Warner looking over your shoulder. Universal was was constantly in flux, and they made these these cheap little films that allowed for a lot of personal expression, much like yep. uh, like Hell's a Poppin. Uh, yep. I really, I, I wish he had talked about RKO. I think RKO has has a, a fascinating history, and it would. Um, he talked about Val Luton when when Luton was working for Selznick. For like half a second, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he keeps turning up in in the Selznick section, and uh, Val Luton after after uh, Selznick quit uh, went and had his own unit at RKO where he did these. Uh, uh, kind of low budget horror films like the cat people and uh the leopard man and it's it's really interesting there's there's a great box set out there of of the luton uh at rko horror films and it's it's a great test case for the auteur theory versus the genius of the system theory or the producer as auteur theory because you can look at all of these films and what really stands out 
are the ones that were directed by Jacques Tenor and not the ones that were directed by Robert Wise and Mark Robson. And so the question is, is why is that? Is it, is it because of Tenor? Is it because Luton just happened to be more interested in cat people than he was in Isle of the Dead? I, I don't know. But the auteurist would say it's because Jacques Tenor, the auteurist would say it's because Jacques Tenor is a great filmmaker and Robert Wise is a competent filmmaker. And they're not the same thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, what are you going to do with your second copy of this book, Sean? I don't know. <laughs> Doorstop? I don't know. Maybe maybe at our, our Hells of Poppin' event we'll, we'll burn it or something. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, um, I... That being said, you know, I actually did quite enjoy this little uh, side adventure for the show. And, you know, maybe once a year we can tackle one of these um, kind of um, big name books and, and kind of dive into them. Because, I, I, you know, I do find these, you know, I, I eat these things up, you know, um, no matter how questionable the uh, content um, yeah. I tend to find something worthwhile in these things, and so I um, actually I actually found the book really fascinating as as history and as like a exactly. recitation of facts. I think I think it's really well written. Uh, I just think it it completely fails as argument, and 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 that's the thing that that kept bugging me. And I would be fine for long stretches, and then he'd throw in like a little dig at at a director or at directors. Oh, I wanted to mention the. Uh, the thing about Hitchcock, you, you talked about Hitchcock and Selznick and, and how that rubbed you the wrong way. Yeah. The way he ends Hitchcock really, really oh, outraged yeah. me. Where, uh, where he, was, uh, he's, he kind of like throws Marnie and uh, the no, no, frenzy. Be, be, before that, he, he, oh. he basically argues that, that Hitchcock's uh, great films of the late 1950s to, through the early 60s, from, from Rear Window through The Birds, are the product of the organizational abilities of Lou Wasserman, who was Hitchcock's agent. <laughs> and that when Wasserman left Hitchcock, then Hitchcock just made terrible movies for the rest of his life. Right. Yeah. And no, that, that's, yeah. it's just appallingly Wrong. outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that, that whole section, like I said, I think this book gets worse as it goes. I really think the, the, the second half is, is, really um where where it kind of goes astray and yeah that whole that whole like epilogue or whatever with uh, hitchcock is uh is pretty egregious um and i also and this might just me be me inferring things uh some of his writing about women in here kind of annoyed me like um he uh he really hates betty davis um, <laughs> Um, yeah, the the whole the whole attitude of this book um, it struck me as as like a like a knee jerk right wing reaction thing. It's like they're the job creators. Like you didn't build that, we built that. Like this is this is like the film history textbook for you know the 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 uh, the one percent. For uh, what's that guy? Um... Mitt Romney. Yeah. <laughs> No, what's the guy from Seattle? Michael. Uh, oh, Michael Medved. Michael Medved. Yeah, he's that more of dude. like a religious right kind of guy. Yeah, I know. This is like the moneyed right. This is like the guys who were in charge of the purse strings. They're the real heroes. Right. And it's, right. Just, it's just an attitude I find wholly distasteful. 
it's like it's it, it is it's it's like you know crediting the uh the record company executive for the you know the the songwriting or right. or the 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 editor of a magazine article for you know the magazine article right it's 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 just it backwards yeah i i agree i completely agree but that being said i would you know maybe down the line try you know maybe we could try another book um something we'll, I, I we'll read hitchcock Truffaut. how's that sound we'll we'll really dive in there with that um it made well, me, anyway. it made me want to reread the american cinema and uh and you ain't heard nothing yet which is andrew saris's book about the studio era um a much better book uh about hollywood in the 40s that i read recently is by uh otto friedrich called city of nets if you can find that uh, it's it's really good. It's got a ton of historical detail, including a, a truly heartbreaking story about Gene Tierney. Ooh, that, that, okay. <laughs> Way to sell it, Sean. It's a it's a great book, and it, and it, it gets more into uh, the kind of uh, psychosis of of Louis B. Mayer than uh, than Schatz is is willing to admit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he really cool. kind of. Over, over, uh, he kind of glosses over a lot of the really terrible things that uh, the studio system did, including the blacklist and stuff like that. Uh, whereas uh, Friedrich is uh, much more uh, uh, in line with my political point of view in taking on that era. We uh, we didn't even talk about. I mean, you know, we're running long here as it is, but uh, <laughs> John Houston too um, uh, kind of obliterates this guy's. You know, it, it the, the section on John Houston in here is kind of one of the most fascinating ones, too, because, um, you know, he talks about the, you know, the deals that Houston made so that he could make his movies um, with the studio. But then Houston goes off and does his own thing, like African Queen or whatever. And then the movies that the studios are left holding the bag with, Red Badge of Courage or something, um, and the studios are the ones that are, are you know, trying to edit them and, and, and get them out there um flop <laughs> so it's right and then he does he does like the asphalt jungle and it's a huge hit or exactly yeah, yeah. so anyway um there's a, there's a lot to unpack here but um let's uh let's segue from that into uh actually a a movie about uh hollywood or about you know filmmaking from the point of view of many people including a director um in this case played by Humphrey Bogart um in Joseph L Mankiewicz's the Barefoot Contessa. And so, once upon a time, three years ago, we came to Madrid, to a not very fashionable nightclub to see Maria Vargas dance. Let me tell you who we were. The man with the sweaty face and the frightened eyes was and is Oscar Muldoon. He's a public relations counselor, which can be many things, unrelated and not public at all. The blonde was made in Hollywood, USA. Her name was Myrna. She traveled. I was a writer and or director who hadn't been doing too well. We were all in the employ of Kirk Edwards. Meet Kirk Edwards. You're saying to yourself, so that's what he looks like. That's what a Wall Street wizard looks like who came up from the streets of New York. Who came up from the bottom but never really left it. Don't feel sorry for Kirk Edwards. Not unless you're a hungry psychiatrist. Kirk was producing a motion picture, his first. He had as much in common with anything creative as I have with nuclear physics. 
Well, we'd been scouting for what is called delicately a new face. By most standards, flying all the way to Madrid to look for a new face would seem like going to a lot of trouble. But I've known movie producers who would travel even further for a good smoked whitefish. All right, so one of the uh, one of the figures who kind of floats in around the the background of the genius of the system is Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who uh, his brother, of course, Herman Mankiewicz, was a screenwriter uh, throughout the 1930s. He most famously wrote uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, co-wrote it. <laughs> co-wrote Citizen <laughs> Kane. Uh, Come on, Pauline Kale. Come on, get with the program. Mankiewicz worked as as a writer and a producer before becoming a, a director in his own right, and he was was one of those producer directors who who had a lot of control over over the films that he made. And he did a a series of films in the late thirties and nineteen forties. It's kind of a a rough trilogy uh, with uh, the Letter to Three Wives, All About Eve, and the Barefoot Contessa, in which. Uh, Stories are told from a variety of points of view. Uh, Barefoot Contessa is uh, is about a a woman, uh, a Spanish woman named Maria, who is discovered in Madrid and taken to Hollywood, where she becomes a big star, and then somehow she dies. And we meet with the story begins at her funeral. And Humphrey Bogart is telling us all about how he met her. And he was the writer and director of the movies that she appeared in. And as the movie unfolds, we'll learn what exactly happened to her, how she went from being discovered to being dead in three years. And it is, it's loosely based on Rita Hayworth. And the Bogart character is a, a kind of rough version of Mankiewicz himself. Uh, and the other, other figures in the film are also kind of somewhat akin to actual people. So what did you think of this one? Uh, I like it. Uh, it's, it's a good movie. Um, you know, all about, you, you know, you, you said that, you know, these, uh, it kind of forms a loose trilogy. Um, and all about Eve, unfortunately hangs over this like a specter. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I think I mean I'm not alone in, in thinking all about Eve is is a flat out masterpiece. Um, and no, no, no doubts, one of one of the great studio it's, films. It's it's just it bowls you over. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, and I, I feel like some of the the stuff that he does here, he did better there and um with with that kind of the structure at the beginning um you know all about eve opens you know at an awards banquet or whatever and then we get the the flashback structure um to it um but no i but on the whole i i did you know respond to this movie i i, I liked it um quite a bit um i i felt like i i kind of wanted to, so it it shifts points of view you get uh humphrey bogart's director's version of like you said the beginning where they meet um and he kind of you know befriends her and what i did really like is that their relationship him and ava gardner who plays maria vargas um it's more of a paternal um and a, a friendly relationship and and it doesn't go into a um, romantic entanglements um but anyway so you get you get that 
their version. Um, and then you get Edmund O'Brien's version. He plays um, Oscar Muldoon, who is um, really sleazy. <laughs> He's a, a PR guy for He's the a producer. PR guy. And he is, I mean... His, the first scene with him in it, he's he's known as the guy that's con, you know constantly sweating. So that tells you what he's like. Um, I would have personally uh, liked to see more of the Bogart um, Gardner relationship and have that kind of go um, be the the movie because um, I feel like those the interactions between Bogart and Gardner are the best parts of this movie. Um, there's the scene where she's being courted. Um, Bogart has been signed to direct the picture, um, but it's being financed by um, Kirk Edwards. Is that the guy? Yeah, Kirk Edwards. Uh, he's a, a rough analog of Howard Hughes. Right. He's a he's a rich, you know, he's filthy rich, and he's and he's looking to dip his toes into you know filmmaking, and so he gets Bogart. And and anyway, Bogart is tasked with kind of convincing Ava Gardner to um, to sign for the film, and. There's a scene, a very poignant, very sweet, um, and very um, just kind of loose scene with the two of them um, outside of her, you know, her home, um, at where he's he's not pushing her, he's not prodding her, he's just he's he's just talking to her, and their their relationship to me is what makes this movie. Um, yeah, I love I love that scene as as well. I love how it takes its time like it, it, that's, it is that's in what no I was trying hurry. to say whereas all about eve uh, this this to me seems not so much like of a piece with all about eve as it is like the opposite of all about eve like everything in in eve is 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 quick and fast and everyone is is talking all the time and there's there's never any any kind of space for reflection and and barefoot contessa is much slower which, you know, you know, you, you might say it drags in places, but it also it feels more more human and more humane because it takes its time with those scenes. I agree with that. Although the movie, um, consciously so, I mean, it it it, it brings us up multiple times that uh, she's a modern day Cinderella, um, and there are these fairy tale elements to her life of where she. You know, she she gets picked up from poverty, you know, practically um, becomes this, you know, superstar um, actor after only making three films and then becomes a princess um, or a count or a contessa, excuse me. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's not the barefoot princess. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> you get more asses in the seats if that was the case. Um, but uh, so. My, well, I, I don't. Th I don't think the Cinderella uh, metaphor really works to describe the film. Like he, Bogart mentions it. I think. I think he is trying to. His character is trying to impose the Cinderella story on her life, and it doesn't. It doesn't fit. It doesn't match the evidence. Yeah. Well, and the movie. This is my problem with the movie. Is is um, it calls attention to that. I mean, I think that what you just said actually happens. I mean, I think he actually says that in the movie. Like, you're the Cinderella, but now you're, you know, something like your story will not fit into, you know, the box or whatever, something like that. Um, right. And I think, I think that's what's at, at, at the heart of the film is, is the fact that, that she goes through 
these four it's it she goes through four worlds basically there's like the madrid world where she started and then the film world with bogart and then she's in the uh, the french riviera with marius garing and then she's uh, in the italian nobility with uh, with her her husband the count and each one of these men is attempting to define her via the own the way that they see the world and none of them fit and that's like the 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 tragedy for her is that none of the men around her are able are ever able to make sense of her on her own terms yeah i i agree with you i just feel like and this is what i was trying to to get into is that um i think the movie's a little too conscious of that and i think it's a little too explicit um especially in terms of it's a very well-written movie don't get me wrong Joseph Mankiewicz can write a screenplay and he's got some really great dialogue here. Um, but a little bit, it, it hits a little too on the nose to me at times. Um, scenes, scenes feel like you were talking about how it's humane, but it doesn't feel very organic to me. Um, you know, I mean, except for individual scenes where, like you said, where it, it, it takes its time to play out and stuff, but on the whole, um, it feels it talk the movie you know continually talks about especially when Bogart is narrating about um, how if this was a re if this was a movie things would play differently where this you know instead of this happening this would happen or something um, and I appreciate that I like that it zigs when it when you it wants you to zag but then that also feels like a conceit to me and it kind of uh, was a bit of a distraction um, yeah, whereas see, in I, something I, like. I see that as as the Bogart character's voice rather than the film's voice, if that makes sense. Like I, I think but I don't, I I don't like think the, the the film is being meta. I think the Bogart character is being meta. See, I I disagree because as you said, the Bogart character and he's the one that we get most of the time with because he he does a, a back you know well, he, flash. He, he dominates the film like he has more yeah. more narration than anyone else and he's humphrey bogart and it's it's one of his best performances i think well so and and as you said he's a surrogate for mankowitz and so i well, can't help but i i, I wouldn't know. say he's a surrogate for mankowitz i would say that he is a mankowitz type person which is different from being the lens through which mankowitz views the events on the film Okay, um, that's fair. I, I felt like it, it 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 played its hand maybe a little too much. Um, yeah, see, but, I, but, I, I don't I don't I don't think Mankiewicz necessarily wants us to see things the way that Bogart does. Um, I just I just feel like the construction of that narrative is um, just it's it's a little too writerly. Is, is it, it is. I, it's 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 it. I. I understand what you're saying. It is very schematic. Like it's, it's yeah. set up and uh, the guys that she goes through and the fact that they just get worse and worse and worse until she ends up with the count who is like, he seems like the nicest guy, but he's actually the worst guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry. There's still a it's like, chaos. You know, that the higher and higher up she goes, the social scale, the more terrible the human being she meets. Right, which is um, which is which is is neat, but it's also too neat. 
Yeah, exactly. That's and that's I think that's my my you know, and I don't want to dwell on this. You know, I feel like I've 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 kind of maybe spent too much time talking about that because I do think this is a really solid movie. And I think um like you said, Bogart is I can't think of him being any better um than he is in this movie. Um and you know, I think like once again that goes to my uh, original um uh complaint or whatever is that I wish there was more of him in this because he's so good you know um yeah like uh like I was saying with all about Eve I, I see this as like a kind of like an inversion of that because uh as you said the opening all about Eve begins in an award ceremony and Barefoot Contessa begins at a funeral and so this movie is just it's obsessed with with death and with the end of things and it comes in right at the end of the studio system and it's got this this real end of an era vibe to it that that all about eve does not uh Mm -hmm. that movie was about you know getting older in the theater but it is so full of life and even you know the villainous characters in that film are so you know vibrant and and exciting whereas in in barefoot contessa Everyone is just drunk and miserable and sweaty yep. and and just ruined. And and Bogart and his wife, you know, just kind of barely eke out a, a little bit of happiness and and it just it completely destroys Maria. See, and that's it's okay, so that's sad. It's really sad. <laughs> it's a very sad movie. I agree with you on that. Um that's another thing, and I mentioned this in my letterbox review for it. Is um, I, I know you're sp- you, you the way the movie's structured is that we we view Maria from a distance because you know obviously we never get her version of the story. You know we get the men in her life recounting her and 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 um, her effect on them and and all of that stuff. Um, which is that's it, central to what the movie's about and how the movie plays out. But I find Jerry, which is played by uh, Elizabeth Sellers, who is um, Bogart's wife in this movie. Um, she's only in a couple of scenes, but I find her, her character so so much more interesting in certain respects than Maria Vargas because she's self assured. She seems to have a really trusting, loving relationship with her husband, um, and. Um, I would like to see a, a movie about her. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, I agree. She, she's she's terrific, and and so I think is uh, is Valentina Corteza, who plays the Count's sister, who who isn't in the film long, but uh, she seems much more interesting than the Count. <laughs> yes. Like she's, yeah, she's, she's got this, she, she's the one that brings in kind of the post-war vibe into the film, uh, where her husband had been killed in the war. And then we get into, you know, what happened to the count in the war. Uh, so it's not just like a, a, a post-studio system film. It's also a post-war film and just kind of an, an alien aimlessness of this, of this generation. Uh, it fits, I think in with, uh, with like the best years of our lives and, and it's a wonderful life and, and kind of these really depressing movies that directors made when they came home from the war. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, definitely Jerry, Jerry, she's awesome. Jer- Jerry and Harry, we could, uh, we could have a sitcom with them <laughs> set in, uh, in Hollywood 
just making movies and playing backgammon at parties and watching you people know? completely fall apart. Yeah, from the sidelines. Like those yeah. people are so much more interesting. The people that actually have some semblance of like happiness and structure to their lives, um, that are watching the the um, insanity unfold before them, um, they're, they're very interesting. Speaking of insane, uh, Edmund O'Brien won the Best Supporting Actor for his uh, very sweaty performance here. Uh, and that was the only award this one, right? Isn't that correct? Yeah, it was nominated for original screenplay, but yeah. but O'Brien won. And at first, I found his his performance just just too too too, too big, sleazy, too big, too sweaty, too too sleazy. But it, it kind of grew on me as as it went on. And Edmund O'Brien is is kind of a mediocre star. I've never really had a strong reaction to him one way or the other, but I, I liked him here. I liked his I, sweatiness, I, and I liked uh, the way Jack Cardiff made him all shiny because he was sweaty all the time. Yeah, I uh, I thought he was fine. I, I don't think it's the best performance in the movie by a long shot. Um, like you said, Bogart's fantastic, um, and you know others... Um, I think I would I would say are stronger than him, but but his presence is very present in this movie. You know, I mean, he's yeah. you know I, I can see why he was the one that was singled out. Bogart's you know more of a reactive character. He's he's kind of just sitting there, you know, obs- you know observing stuff. Whereas Edmund O'Brien is is he's got these you know slimy sleazy you know um, plans for life and stuff. And so obviously, and, you and know, he talks so loud. And he talks very loud. I, so, I, uh, I also, I really liked uh, Mary Scoring, uh, who, you know, of course, from, from several uh, Michael Power and Elmer oh, Pressburger yeah. films, uh, Red Shoes, Matter of Life and Death. Uh, he has the, the great, uh, he has this great showdown with the, the Howard Hughes character, where he just uh, harangues him at a party and refuses to, to fight him, but just calls him out for his hypocrisy that is uh, one of the most fun parts of, of a very sad film. Yeah, that's, that section is really great because he, you know, he just tears down any sort of pretense and just, like, you know, destroys this guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's a brutal scene. I mean, it's, like, like I said, it, you know, it's, very, it's a very well-written movie, and, and the structure in that scene alone is, is, just goes to show that um, because by the end of that scene, everybody has abandoned the Howard Hughes character. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's rough. Yeah. You know, I could, I could almost see this as the kind of film that the George Sanders character in all about Eve would write. Yeah. I, except, yeah, I, except I, it has far too much heart. And, I was just about to say there, there might be a little too much feeling in here for yeah. uh, George Sanders. Um <laughs> But just the kind of, of dark and, and bleak and amoral world that it that it depicts is is very much in uh, in Addison DeWitt's right purview. Speaking of George Sanders and tying it back in with Genius of the System, uh, one of the little tidbits that I was surprised to read was that um, the studio wanted George Sanders to play uh, the role that ultimately went um, to Claude Rains in Notorious, which. Uh, Wow, that would be a different movie if that was George Sanders. <laughs> I think it, it would uh, it would have been okay. I mean, he played a, a similar kind of role in Foreign Correspondent. Yeah, but there's there's a Claude Rains. 
I mean, Claude, Claude Rains is, is fantastic. And, and that's the thing with Casablanca. We didn't really talk about it because, because Casablanca as, as Saris has written is like the single greatest exception to the auteur theory. Like there, there is no single voice responsible for Casablanca. Like you can't, you can't ascribe that movie to any one person. Uh, but what what Casablanca is 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 a film of many different auteurs. You got you have Bogart and Bergman and Rains and and Michael Curtiz and uh, uh, Max Steiner doing the score and all of the and the Epstein brothers and with the screenplay and all of these people are are putting you know their individual selves into the film and and you know that's what makes it so great is is not you know the studio it's not warner brothers it's not jack warner it's not the system that made casablanca it's it's a bunch of auteurs doing their best work all together right yeah absolutely i'm not gonna let this book go i'm I'm, I'm glad we gotta get one more pot shot in before we uh, close the show here um well uh with that um, I think it's I think it's time for us to 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 get angry um, in in music form, as it were. <laughs> yes, from, from um, a band named after uh, one of the great uh, Warner Brothers gangster films. That's right. I'm sure Cagney was uh, was thought of when they when they came up with this name. Um, this is Public Enemy with Burn Hollywood Burn. Burn Hollywood Burn. I smell a riot going on. First the guilty, now they're gone. Yeah, I'll check out a movie. But it'll take a black one to move me Get me the hell away from this TV All this news and views are beneath me So all I hear about is shots ringing out About gangs putting each other's head out So I'd rather kick some slang out Alright fellas, let's go hang out Hollywood or would they not Make us all look bad like I know they had But some things I'll never forget Yeah, so step and fetch this shit For all the years we look like clowns The joke is over, smell the smoke from all around to mother let's check out a flick that exploits the color rolling through hollywood late at night red and blue lights with a common sight pull to the curb get played like a sucker don't fight the power the motherfucker as I walked the streets of Hollywood Boulevard, thinking how hard it was for those who starred in the movies, portraying the roles of butlers and maids, slaves and hoes. Many intelligent black men seemed to look uncivilized when on the screen. Like I guess I figure you to play some jigaboo on the plantation. What else can a nigga do? And black women in this profession, after playing a lawyer, out of the question. For what they played, Angel Mama is the perfect term. Even if now she got a perm. So let's make our own movies like Spike Lee. Cause the roles being offered don't strike me. There's nothing that the black man could use. The earth burn Hollywood burn. All right, that is our show for this week. I promise to not talk about autourism or genius of the system anymore. Uh, <laughs> on our next show, which is going to be sometime in the middle of August, we're not exactly sure yet because you are going to be out of the country until mid August. Uh, but at some That's point great. after that, we are going to come back and we're going to talk about one of my favorite film discoveries of the year. I'm going to watch it for the third time, at least, and I'm very excited to make you watch it. 
that would be Pitch Perfect, starring Anna Kendrick. And I am forcing you to watch a film that I'm shocked you've never seen before, um, Rock and Roll High School, starring the Ramones. Um, and it's going to be super fun. <laughs> I'm excited. So look for that. Yeah, there's a we we there was a tie-in. There's a, Anna Kendrick has a new movie coming out in August. Oh, that's I guess. right. I would like to. I'd like to. Let yeah, there's know there's a, a reason, not just that I just want to watch Pitch Perfect again. <laughs> little inside inside baseball here for you, uh, listeners. Uh, Sean and I uh, spent I swear it was like 45 minutes before recording today, coming up with some sort of idea for the next show, and we went through like 15 different ideas before setting on. Uh, Pitch Perfect in Rock and Roll High School. So we, we put a lot of work into this show. At some point, <laughs> we're going to do that eight-hour French Revolutions show with uh, uh, Grand Without a Cat and La Commune. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Sometime when we we're have absolutely the, nothing else to do. In the cold winter months, you know, yeah. when you don't want to go outside. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think Pitch Perfect and Rock and Roll High School is a great, you know, late summer double feature. So uh, I oh, look yeah. forward to it. Yeah, and if you are in the San Francisco area, coming up in at the end of August, there's a bunch of good movies playing at the uh, the Castro Theater. They're doing a, a series of of double features of uh, matching a Richard Linklater film with a Leos Carax film. I saw that, which is is pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, the one I'm I'm going to recommend is uh, playing on August 28th. It's uh, Leos Carax's Les Amants de Pont Neuf with Richard Linklater's Before Midnight. And uh, yeah, go see that if you are in San Francisco. Yeah, that's pretty bonkers. Um, at the end of the year, uh, and we've said this a couple of times on the show, um, we're going to do our uh, best of 1984 episode. We're going to talk about two movies from that year that we haven't seen before. We're going to give our, you know, top five of the year, give out our pseudo Oscars for the year. Um, just like we did last year with, with 1933. Exactly. Um, and you know, it should be a tradition on this show. Um, so if you're in Seattle and you want to get caught up or you want to start, you know, work on that now, uh, SIF Cinema, um, August 1st through the 3rd, will be running uh, Stop Making Sense, Jonathan Demme's uh, Talking Heads concert film, um, which I just rewatched uh, a couple weeks ago. And that movie's electric, man. <laughs> I, I've not seen that one. That's one I have to watch before before the end of the year. Oh, man. The version of Psycho Killer that opens that movie um, is one of my favorites. I mean, it's just, and, and David Byrne, man, that guy's got energy to burn. So it's a great film. Um, and it's playing at SIF cinema. So go check that out. All right. And it's definitely one to see if if you can see it on the big screen. I saw it the first time I saw it was in Olympia, um, Washington at the Capitol theater, uh, about 10 years ago. And, uh, yeah, it, the house was rocking. So, so that's that. Yeah. Right. So, uh, uh, if you want to uh, contact us, you can find us on the internet at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com and on the uh, Twitter at geosandershow and via email. What is our email address? Thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. And 
You know, now that I brought it up at the beginning of the show, I'm really actually going to look into this Hell's a Poppin' screening. <laughs> so, uh, so stay tuned to that. It, like I said, it'll probably be uh, near the end of the year. But uh, if you're in Seattle or if you're in Vancouver, B.C., or if you're in Portland or, or if you want to come to Seattle, um, I'll try and get some details on that because I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And I, I basically just want another excuse to watch Hell's a Poppin', and I, I want to make other people watch it. So, um yeah, that was that's the great thing about uh, running movies is is making people watch them or or you know <laughs> inviting people to watch them and then watching them watch it. It's kind of creepy, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been doing this uh, Hitchcock series at the library, which I mentioned uh, on the previous show or a couple shows back, um, and it's so great. I mean, you know, um, it's you know, it's not the best. You know, obviously it's it's in a basement of a Carnegie library, you know, with a screen that's pulled down from the ceiling and stuff. It's not the best pr um, projection you're going to get or best sound quality. But uh, yeah, it, it does. It doesn't matter how small the venue. You know, cinema is cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so without further ado, we talked about him on the show. We haven't heard from him for a couple of episodes, uh, but he's going to take us away today. So uh, here's George. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die 